basically, uh, I, I take the position of Hermann Bavinck, the, the famous reformed um, systematician who found the root of both liberalism and uh, conservative evangelicalism today, both uh, are rooted in pietism. Okay, so we, we discussed what pietism is last week, and, and if you don't know what it is, I, I ask that you would uh, listen to it on Sermon Audio, it's on there, uh, available. Um, but Herman Bavinck pretty much said that <clears throat> pietism had two children, liberalism and what we would call um, the modern-day evangelical movement, okay, uh, which gave birth to the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, on and on it goes, and um, which is different than being confessionally reformed. These are two different things. Um, and we see that today, even more so. We probably didn't see it a couple decades ago, but we see it now, um, the evidence of it. So uh, we're diving right into the chapter on doctrine uh, by J. Gresson Machen in his uh, wonderful book, Christianity and Liberalism. And I've gotten feedback that for many of you, uh, the book is hard to read. So, so I'm going to try to give you the, the context behind it so you can better understand what he is speaking to, the problems, the issues here. So just to give a quick background to this chapter, uh, there were ministers in the Peace USA who started off doctrinally conservative, who grew indifferent to doctrine. Uh, and this is the beginning of all versions of liberalism. And the emphasis shifted from doctrine to activity, that is, cultural and political activity. The common trend that we see over and over again is that there is an indifference to doctrine, which leads to an emphasis placed on cultural activity, politics, which somehow, don't ask me how, somehow leads to a zeal for evangelism and missions. Don't ask me how that happens, but it does. But the catch for that is that it is with a cultural identity tied to it. So what the gospel became by Machen's time was a spread of Americanism, not the gospel. We understand that as two different things, right? I would hope. Evangelism and missions is a good thing, and we should be involved and support these efforts. But what is the point of it if there is an indifference to doctrine? The primary goal of evangelism and missions is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, of the essence, a doctrine. It is a teaching. Uh, Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So instead of the proclamation of the gospel, at the time, some believed that missions and evangelism was to spread the love of Jesus. Um, spreading the love of Jesus is good, right? That's a good thing, we all agree. But it doesn't convert anyone. Spreading the love of Jesus does not convert anyone. 
It is only the preaching of the gospel. Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Preaching the gospel, true to its doctrine, is the foundation of missions and evangelism. And so the emphasis in the mission field shifted from the proclamation of the gospel, which would require someone to be sound in doctrine, to the social gospel. Humanitarianism. Or even spreading the American way of life. That's what evangelism became. And missions. Do I love America? Of course. Machen loved America. Now, this is my home. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else on this earth. Unless I was called to the mission field. But spreading the American way of life. Which is life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Is not the same as preaching Christ. They're different. In the Peace USA. They wrote statements on things like patriotism, patriotism and piety. That was one that really turned Machen. We know of some churches today that devote some Sundays to cultural holidays. Veterans Day, Mother's Day, etc., etc., etc. You've probably been to churches like that. There were declarations coming from liberals. And listen to this declaration. Let me know if it doesn't sound familiar. Declarations coming from liberals that in order to save the church, we must save America. That sounds like a modern day conservative political campaign, doesn't it? That is the social gospel. But today it's often confused as conservatism. But that's liberalism. That's what Machen wanted to point out. And with the social gospel, the church was becoming a national church with a national identity rather than a heavenly body with a heavenly identity. Sermons in the Peace USA became lectures on moral uplift or ways we can change American society. And they would close their service by singing the battle hymn of the Republic. There's that, there's this word today, cringy, among young people, that's super cringy, right? For a church to do that. This is not what the church was for, according to Machen. And it's all about time and place, right? It's all about time and place. When we gather for worship, we are not gathering to celebrate a national Identity. We do that six days a week. Another day. We, we designate for that. On Sundays, we gather to worship the God of all creation and to celebrate salvation in Christ alone and we are recognizing our heavenly identity. It's about time and place. Um, this is why there is no American flag in any OPC churches. We refuse to put up any national flags. I've been to a church where they put up a flag for every nation represented in the church. And my goodness, you're going to run out of room But by, by the time you do that. Because we're not saved by our ethnicity. 
nor where we were born. Right? We're not saved by national identity or ethnicity. They were so distracted with the cultural war or seeking cultural influence that eventually there would be missionaries who were ordained in the Peace USA to go overseas who weren't even believers. They couldn't. They couldn't confess that Christ was born of a virgin or that he was bodily, he was raised bodily. This would eventually lead Machen into controversy in the Peace USA and eventually disciplined, and he would go on to be the founder of the OPC. So you see, Machen would have a problem with not only the obviously identifiable liberal churches today, uh, as we see them with the you know, gay flags and this, that, and the other, the pride flags, uh, but he would also have a problem with some so-called conservative churches that have traded the pure gospel for spreading a culture or a way of life. He would even oppose what would be described today as Christian nationalism. That is not what the preaching of the gospel is. Is Christianity a lifestyle? Yes, but it is founded on a doctrine. It is founded on doctrine. Any questions so far? I saw some confused faces. So you understand what the fight was about. It is similar today as back then. Okay. We're not the mainstream. We're not meant to be the mainstream. When you see the church go mainstream, there's probably a problem there. When you see popular preachers having a big impact and a voice, there's probably a problem behind it. So we must be careful. By the time of Machen, liberalism wasn't just found in the higher institutions of learning, such as seminaries and university, universities, but it has also infiltrated the church and other religious publications. And he said that the remedy is not to get rid of theological seminaries. That's, that's not how you fix the problem. That is usually the knee-jerk uh, reaction that we get from evangelicals and evangelicalism today. It is either one extreme or the other. They try to cut off the branches that holds the bad fruit rather than address what is the root of the problem. We see this with tradition. That is like a byword uh, in evangelical churches. If you're a traditional church, uh-uh, you can't be that. Because Rome was traditional. No, Rome was, they were traditionalists. There's nothing wrong with tradition. There is a tradition that we pass down from the scriptures. So tradition is not bad. You don't throw out tradition because Rome, they were traditionalists. No, our tradition is founded on the scriptures. So he says, instead of getting rid of seminaries, we are to double down and pursue the truth even more so than before. We're not to hide. We're to double down and keep doing it. Keep pressing forward. This means the need for more pastors to be trained in new and faithful seminaries. So here in the book, he already has Westminster on his mind. He, he already has uh, a new seminary uh, brewing in his mind that this is what will need to be done uh, to combat liberalism in the church. Because one of the problems that he observed in the seminaries and in the churches is the desire to avoid giving offense on the part of the religious teachers. 
Because remember, the fruit of the Spirit and how we are to speak the truth in love, right? Whenever you try to correct false teaching or bad doctrine, this is what they hit you with. It's true. We are to speak the truth in love, but we are still to speak the truth, even if it offends. Uh, Machen lived during the times where many mainline, mainline Protestants toted the line, doctrine divides, but love unites. Right? This goes back to the Second Great Awakening. It sounds really pious, doesn't it? But as soon as you ask the question, what is love? The answer to that question is doctrine. <laughs> they can't escape doctrine. It is teaching. And you are responsible to tell people what love is. And it is true that doctrine divides. It divides truth from error. Uh, I'll give you one example. <clears throat> I have a list here. From the letter of Ephesians. Written by Paul. And... If you go to the letter of Ephesians, just consider the first chapter. Go to the back of our confession of faith and look for the proof text. You look for the text, look up Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. How many doctrines can you find just in those verses? Just in those, what, 11 verses? Okay? I'll just list a few. The relations between the Father and the Son. Right? We, we talk about the Father sending the Son and the Son being sent. Uh, you find union with Christ. Election. Predestination. The atonement. Justification. Sanctification. Adoption. Glorification. God's sovereignty and providence. Illumination of the Holy Spirit or what we call regeneration. The means of grace. That is the word preached. The spirituality of the church. Assurance of salvation. The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. The fact that we are saved alone by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Then you have the Trinity. Right there in the first chapter of Ephesians. Verses 3 through 6 is the work of the Father. Verses 7 through 10 is the work of the Son. And verses 11 through 14 is the work of the Holy Spirit. Doctrine divides truth from error, and it is the foundation of love. I, I think I'm going to get into it later, but 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, is surrounded by chapters on doctrine. So that old line, doctrine divides, love unites, doesn't work, practically speaking. It's not true. It's not true. Consider Jesus' ministry. One of, one of his most important roles was that he was a rabbi, as his disciples called him. He was a, a teacher. A teacher of what? A teacher of teachings. That's another word for doctrine. So this desire to avoid offending people is dishonest because we know, and the teachers knew at the time, that the views of traditional biblical Christianity are radical and offensive <laughs> 
to the natural man. The natural man cannot accept it, so they are offended by it. We must come to terms with that. We don't preach the gospel to be liked. Hopefully, we're preaching the gospel for God. For God. How often did Jesus offend his listeners? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. Actually, throughout his entire ministry, someone somewhere was angry. One example comes from John chapter 6. He offended many of his own disciples and they stopped following him after he revealed his deity and taught the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation and election. When he said this, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Gone. All those faithful disciples left him. Because they were offended. It's like one, one pastor who has said, many, many of you, you probably know, uh, according to our culture in this world, there is an 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. Now, are we to be kind? Of course. Of course. I hope we're not going around beating people up with the gospel. Especially the, the good news that the gospel presents. It ought, it ought to come off kind and merciful. But kindness does not mean compromise. Machen claims that these teachers who desired nice Christianity did not want to lose their place in the church or in their place in the culture by speaking up. That was their concern. Now, now think of Princeton. Princeton, an Ivy League college. Probably one of the most well-known colleges and seminaries in America. Today, even today, you, you say the word Princeton, it's like, whoa, you're a big shot if you go there. An elite school. Now imagine the position they were in. Now we can influence Christ and the culture from this place, but we're going to have to compromise just a little bit. We're going to have to let a little bit of this in and we'll all be this one happy family and we'll still remain influential. We don't want to lose influence. So their main concern was influence. It wasn't the souls of men and women. That was the problem. That's the problem for the church today. We're running that risk today. In response to the cultural wars, we're running the risk of saying, yes, we've got we to budge a little bit so we can hold influence, so we can change things. That's going to be the open door, once again, for liberalism in the church. Like I said before, there are teachers, Christian teachers, so-called, who will speak to the topics where they will have a following in the culture. So you go on YouTube. I mean, there's all sorts of topics you could cover today, whether it's transgenderism, blah, 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 all this stuff. You'll find a popular Christian teacher speaking to it. But when it comes to doubling down on doctrine and standing their ground on those things that, you know, some Christians may say, hey, that, you know, that's a little much. Election? Predestination? God's sovereignty? You, you know, 
Christ's two natures? Well, what does that matter? What matters is this problem. Let him talk to this problem. But if you double down on the doctrines that are the essence of the faith, you won't be recognized, most likely. You have to speak to the cultural issues of today to get any type of following. And that's a shame. That's a shame. We're talking about God here. And the fact that people do not want to know about God, they just want to answer to the problem and not how they can glorify God, that is a problem in itself. So when it comes to doubling down on doctrine, that is the old and musty historic doctrines and creeds of the church, many of the popular teachers today back off because they don't want to lose influence in the culture. Because the focus is not God, it's the world. It's not on God, it's the world. See, I I, I hope you're starting to get it. It's not all that different than the social gospel. It's not that different. These can be conservative guys believing the Bible. That's wonderful. But the way they're approaching it is very similar to the social gospel. Do whatever it takes to hold influence in the world. But all that other stuff, you know, confession of faith, and you know, all, all, all these other nitpicky doctrines, we don't want to get into. That's going to lead people away. That was the problem in the PCUSA. That opened the doors for liberalism. And they are not realizing that doctrine is the foundation to all Christian living. Because the Christian is not fighting a cultural war with worldly weapons. We are fighting a spiritual warfare and our weapons are found laid out in the word of God. So what he saw in the seminaries was a stripping of traditional phrases. I think this is happening with many of our own seminaries today with the desire to avoid offending people. It begins with the changing of traditional phrases that theologians have always used, like systematic theology. Oh, that, that sounds too complicated. Let's, let's change it to something easier, right? Or justification, sanctification. Both are found in our Bibles, by the way. Someone to make seminaries more practical, and they have decided to shrink their systematic theology department and increase their practical theology department because, you know, to them, doctrine is not really practical. We, we hear that a lot. Doctrine is not practical. You, you have to make it practical in itself. Sorry, this kind of contradicts Scripture. Because if the doctrine of God, <clears throat> if I'm sitting up here and I'm teaching on the doctrine of God, and it doesn't cause you to bow your head in worship and adoration of who God is, the problem is not with the teaching nor the teacher. The problem's with you. We need to make that clear. That if we need to change our doctrine of God to suit the taste of others, the, maybe the tickling of their ears, then the problem is with the people, not with the doctrine. 
So we must be careful we're not crossing that line. Um, Daryl Hart gives another reason uh, why for Machen, why Machen thought uh, a number of academics were in dilemma, which is relevant even for us today. This goes to page 54 of his um, good work, Defending the Faith. This is a great work. Uh, I've heard countless good things about it. It's kind of old. I, I forgot what year this was printed in. 1994, so this goes way back. It speaks of all that Machen was dealing with, his fight. I mean, he fought everybody. I mean, everybody was after him at some phase in his ministry. And he said the real problem for conservatives was that their numbers in the academy were declining. A dilemma related to the growth of Bible institutes, not seminaries. Notice the difference in uh, title there. It's an institute now. They've dumbed it down. It's not a seminary anymore. It's not rigorous anymore. It's rather easy for people to get through. And the evangelical habit of putting evangelism and missions ahead of critical reflection and inquiry. What's important? Evangelism and missions, not doctrine. That, that's, you can't put those two things against each other. It's both. They're, they're to be coupled together. Um, this, what he says here, is relevant to someone in the Bible. Who, who do we know is like this? There was somebody in the Bible who had a, I hate picking on him, he had a zeal without learning. Who did Jesus describe as having a zeal without learning? It was Peter. That's the same zeal. Oh, yeah, what matters is the zeal. No, that's not all that matters. Doesn't matter. You can have a heart for whatever you want, but you must be grounded in doctrine. The heart that you have for it, if it's not grounded in doctrine, there's going to be compromise. There's going to be an opening of the door and the flood is going to come in and suddenly you don't have a church anymore. You don't have sound doctrine anymore. You have plays and shows instead of worship. Right? You have a concert instead of worship. So the fundamental problem with liberalism is teaching is no longer important. Doctrine is unimportant. What is important is what you do, your activity. Okay? This is why I shifted uh, the thought. Uh, I kind of broke up the time frame, what happened. <clears throat> you know, you come to Presbyterianism in America who emphasized doctrine at one point, you know, the confession of faith and catechisms, to emotionalism, pietism, which bred activism. Social activism, transforming society, politics, making sure uh, our politics and politicians are distinctly Christian, right? There was that, oh, wow, you know, kind of an uproar if they're not. Um, mind you, that's nowhere in the New Testament that that is a requirement for us to submit to government. Nowhere. So, um, and what became important is your activity, what you're doing. What you do is important, and I think it's a misinterpretation of some texts. I think like the text where there are the sheep and the goats, right? And what separated the sheep from the goats was what they do. That's true. 
But all of the sheep and the goats professed Christ. They professed to know doctrine. So the doctrine didn't go away. Okay? The doctrine was still there. Um, my, my family and I, we left the church years ago uh, because someone who was allowed to teach and speak at a, it was like a leadership conference type of thing, and he was um, uh, kind of a, a seasoned man, he seemed wise, he was older, but he said it, in the context of what you believe, your religion, he says it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what you do. And this was all for the sake of an audience. And, you know, there was an applause. Everybody, everybody clapped. My wife and I looked at each other with our mouths wide open. In shock. One, that he said that in a church. And two, that none of the leaders stood up and said something. That is contrary to historic and biblical Christianity. Jesus said this, For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The I am he, the he is not there in the Greek. Right? That's implied in the word. Uh, for uh, I am. It's actually I am. Ego, a me. He is implied in the word a me. So he said, for unless you believe that I am that I am, that I am your God and Savior, you will die in your sins. Which is another way of saying you will go to hell. So if you don't believe what, who he said he is, who the disciples said he is, who the Bible says he is, as he is fully divine and fully human, the Son of God and only Savior, you will die in your sins. That's doctrine. If we don't have that at the foundation of what we do here, what are we doing here? Really? What are we doing here? We're not doing anything. I mean, we're wasting our time. We could be doing something else. We could be eating and drinking and living our lives for tomorrow we die. Right? Liberalism, liberalism always begins with an indifference to doctrine. And this is something I want to pass on to the coming generations. Because it's always, you know, the third generation, you know, they, they, they think it's a third, fourth generation is where the, the, the doctrine becomes less important and kind of gets pushed aside and activity becomes more important. This becomes like a social club. But it's not. It's not a social club. And we must pass this conviction down to the next generation. There is an indifference to doctrine and liberalism and an overemphasis on experience. And I said this last week, I know this is a golden calf for most evangelicals and probably for a lot of reform. I'm in the minority in this opinion. And I'll say that, but I'm fine with it. Uh, the Great Awakening may have been a primary cause of liberalism today. If you follow it, if you follow the train of thought, if you read the writings and what they propose, that Presbyterians were making too much of a fuss over church government, then you'll see where liberalism 
really had its beginnings. There was an indifference to doctrines found in the Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms, for the sake of unity. For the sake of unity, they wanted to let it go. And a desire for illegitimate religious experiences. That mindset remained in the Presbyterian Church, as I've argued, even after uniting. Then it led to another split between old school and new school during the Second Great Awakening, which would lead to liberalism in the church. It was right after that. Right after uh, the old school, new school debates, liberalism started coming in. And after that, look at the Peace USA today. Has not stopped. And the... The offenses to God that is being displayed in pulpits around our country is evidence of that. My experience is more important than doctrine. Don't tell me what I experience. I have my truth, you have yours. That's liberalism today. And it started off conservative. But Machen would go on to say that for some, it may be a hostility to doctrine, but to others, it is just an exchanging of one doctrine for another. And liberalism, I believe, we have all heard these doctrines before. They vigorously and zealously defend the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. I'm sure we've heard songs that said that God is the father of everyone and everyone is our brother and sister. They're popular songs that, um, especially in the hippie days, I think they they came out with some songs uh, to that effect. Uh, These doctrines contradict the clear teaching of scripture, which identifies God as father to a select few. And so that means our spiritual siblings are only a select few. He, that is Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Right there, that disproves the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. In other cases, some liberals would say that all creeds, that is, the creeds of all religions, we're not talking about the traditional creeds, historic creeds that we hold to, but all creeds of all religions are all equally true. Some would say that of the church today, that all Christian denominations, and I put that loosely in quotes, um, are pretty much the same. If that is the case then they are all equally false because they all contradict each other, right? And this conclusion is based on a liberal belief that all doctrine or all creeds are based on experience. Again, going back to experience. This was the teaching of um, 
Friedrich Schleiermacher. He was a German theologian, and he, was, he is known as the father of modern liberal theology, who I believe was influenced by none other than Jonathan Edwards. He was one of his main influences. Machen said that doctrine based on experience is another form of agnosticism, right? which was at one point the deadliest enemy to the church. Uh, this is believing that no one really can know anything to be objectively true. There's no objective truth. You, you can't really know that Jesus lived, died, and was raised. That, that's agnosticism. Agnosticism is pretty much pervasive in our culture today. But this goes back to Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was a liberal theologian. His dates were 1768 to 1834. And he was influenced before him by Jonathan Edwards, who, though he was sound in some parts of his doctrine, put more emphasis on his affections or the experiences, the spiritual experiences. This is uh, part of the First Great Awakening, right? That, that, that was part of the problem with the First Great Awakening. So instead of a doctrine, it is said by many that Christianity is, not a, is a life and not a doctrine. This is true even today. And this has the appearance of godliness, but it is radically false. Because Christianity is a historical phenomenon. To understand what Christianity is, you must know its history. It must be investigated on the basis of historical evidence. So he says, we ought to go back to the beginnings of Christianity. And the primary source of historical evidence for Christianity is found in the Bible. And when we go to the Bible, we find that the Christian movement began a few days after the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And we'll find definite historical information that has been preserved in the epistles of Paul. There is evidence that there, that evidence there that Paul was in direct communication with the disciples of Jesus in order to corroborate his story and to decide what the fundamental character of the movement was going to be. Think of one example that we covered in the sermon last week. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 and how they settled the matters of doctrine. And that would go on to prove that Christianity, since, since its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense of the term, but a way of life founded on a message. Doctrine is the foundation of Christianity. It wasn't based on mere feeling, nor a pro program of work, but on an account of facts. Just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
This is the first Christian confession that is fundamental to all of our faith and practice. Any questions so far? Let me stop there. Any comments? You probably have tons of them. I see Linda's head like spinning. Maybe at the summary at the end, I'd like to know, because I have a friend, we all do, that things are too strict. And basically what they mean is we're too strict with doctrine. Mm. That love unites, we're too strict. So at the end maybe when you summarize, I would like to know what to say in a few simple sentences that I don't agree with that. And, and, Hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, well, the question would be, is there any scriptural backing to what they're saying? Are they using the Bible to say we're too strict? Probably. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get to the end of this lecture, but I mean, maybe I'm going to summarize on the, uh, the next one, but um, I'm probably going to just say a, a couple more things and we're going to have to pick up where we left off because we're running out of time. Um, but yeah, I will, I will speak to that because, uh, again, a lot of people will, will use the Bible <clears throat> against us to say, yeah, the Bible is not as strict on doctrine as you are. Um, hate to roll my eyes. That, that was just, from the moment you open your Bibles, you're reading doctrine. And you're reading, especially in the context of ancient Near Eastern religion, this is, it's so great if you start studying ancient Near Eastern religion to see what God did in writing the scriptures. He used the, the phraseology of pagans to tell pagans, I'm going to fight you. From the beginning, you open Genesis. In the beginning, God. That was kind of like a, he's calling out all the false religions on their false doctrine. So you read Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, that's God saying, hey, all you false religions out there, yeah, you may have been around before Moses wrote this, but I'm calling you out. I am God. I created all things from the beginning. And he's beginning a fight. He's starting a fight with uh, pagan religion. And you see that fight being played out throughout the whole Bible. And it's all based on doctrine. So, you know, I mean, you do have to and we might even close with this. But you do have to speak to, to folks where they are. You, you know, they are, uh, say if they're using a Bible verse to say, well, the Bible says love is kind. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But you must also add to that, you, you must let them know they can't forget that love is also truthful. And who defines what truthfulness is? but God and his word. And if you're using the Bible to, 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 to counter me to say, I'm not being kind because I am standing on doctrine, you're misusing the Bible there. Are there people who are rude, who will, will be unkind with doctrine? Yes. But that does not mean we need to just keep silent on doctrine. You could take them to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and help them realize that 1 Corinthians 13 is surrounded by doctrinal argument. 
I mean, you could go back to 1 Corinthians 1 where he states the problem. What was the problem? The, the moral problem. But then he gets into doctrine when, when you get into uh, 1 Corinthians 8. Food offered to idols. Right? Don't cause the weaker brother to stumble. Uh, if he has a bad conscience, uh, say he just converted from Judaism and uh, he has a problem with eating food offered to idols, don't, don't eat it around him. Just don't bother him about it. Um, but for you, for yourself, you're fine to eat it. I mean, if you have a strong conscience, eat it. Idols are nothing, right? That's doctrine. We're, we're teaching. And then he talks about um, his warning against idolatry, more doctrine. That involves teaching what idolatry is. Um, he gets into even doctrines that are not that important. The, the level of seriousness of doctrine. Um, chapter 11. Head coverings. Right? He eventually gets to the point, this is not something to call, cause division over. Um, do what your conscience leads you to do, right? But then he gets into more serious doctrine where we can't compromise. The Lord's Supper. Right? Then he gets into spiritual gifts. Then he gets into how we are all one body. And following, and then he, that, that's when he gets into talking about love. And after he talks about love, he starts talking about um, orderly worship. More doctrine right there. How many people use that? Oh, you're not kind. You're too stingy on doctrine to say, hey, you know, why aren't, why isn't our worship more, you know, energizing and exciting and, you know, concert driven, kind of modern. You guys are not being loving. Paul talks about love and then Almost immediately after, he talks about how worship ought to be orderly. How a disorderly worship, someone speaking in tongues over here, someone doing their own thing over here, is actually unloving to the one who can't follow all this. That a solemn worship, an orderly worship, is actually the most loving thing we can have. Okay, so I, I know that's a lot. But you can simply say, where you get this version of love that sounds to me cultural more than it is biblical is surrounded, this passage is surrounded by doctrine. Wayne, you look like you're going to say something. Uh, uh, Being too strict does not mean not willing to compromise. Yeah. Okay? No, no, yeah. So being too strict just says you're not willing to compromise. Well, aren't there examples in the Bible of not compromising? Daniel, in the lion's den, yeah. would not bow down. He was too strict. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to follow Nebuchadnezzar's orders. Yeah. He was thrown into the fiery furnace. They refused to compromise. Yeah. And, and I don't know how many of you read the book, um, Brave by Faith, um, but... Uh, Alistair Begg even said, you know, there were things that he actually did compromise on. But when he came to prayer, he was, he was going to pray to his God. You, you don't cross that line. So there are levels of compromise that the church should be involved with or involved in, but not when it comes to the most fundamental. And for us, we have these fundamental doctrines that the church was compromising on. And... That included worship. It eventually 
uh, we see that the, prog- the progression, uh, liberalism came in, and the worship of the PCUSA and other Presbyterian churches also went. They, they went more contemporary and uh, more about feeling and experience. Um, kind of like sim- cinema. It, it became an act. Um, and, and that in itself is deceiving. It's deceiving. So love does not mean you're not truthful. Right? <clears throat> we must be truthful. And if the Bible teaches it, we're saying this is what the Bible teaches. Why are we what we are as a, a, a Presbyterian church? We believe that's what the Bible teaches. We're not this other church because we believe they're wrong. Um, love is truthful, as it says in First uh, Corinthians 13. Um, and, and all throughout that pa- passage, you need to qualify it. <clears throat> because, you know, people use love bears all things to say, well, we're to ex- accept all types of sin in the church. The first Corinthians, the, the letter to the Corinthians is about correcting them in their sin. So it's not about accepting sin. Love is not about accepting sin. And it is not about accepting bad teaching. That's not love. That's actually deceitful. And it, it leads people into harm's way. Any other comments or questions? Questions? Uh... Historically, you know, many people probably wonder, oh, well, uh, a lot of people haven't been here for the first seven or eight lectures, and I got into a lot of history. There was a lot of history, and I just summarized today. Um, But there was a lot going on, just like there's a lot going on today. There's a lot going on in Machen's time that people often tend to not recognize, but they kind of sweep it aside, sweep it under a rug that was going on that he was up against uh, historically, politically, religiously, every, everywhere he turned, there was something going on. So if you need me to answer any questions too, I can do that. All right, we'll stop there. And next time we will pick up on, <clears throat> um, we'll get back on Doctrine Divides, but Love Unites, uh, as he will uh, address that here. And I think we addressed it in the question. Actually, that was the next thing uh, we were going to cover was what uh, Linda asked about. 1 Corinthians 13. No other questions? Uh, Wayne, would you mind praying?